All right. Well, um, I've had the privilege to travel around the country with the American Renewal Projects and speak in different states. And one of the speakers who uh, I, I have the privilege of listening to while I'm there, I usually do the Issachar training. He does the main event, the American Renewal Project. He presents to pastors. I've heard him talk on a, just a number of topics. And what blows my mind is every time he speaks, I don't ever see notes. And uh, it's ex- extemporaneous in a sense. But um, the wealth of knowledge, every time I sit down, I, I just, my brain gets full. And I get stretch marks on my brain every time I'm with him. But I, I, I leave every time having heard him strengthened in my Christian faith and understanding things I never grasped before. And when he told me he was available, he'd be out in California. He said, I'd love to come and speak to your church. And he speaks to churches that are 10 times our size. And uh, that he would come be with us was such an honor. And his wife came too. Sue's going to be back there. You'll get a chance to see her when you go back to the, the book table. But uh, Bill Federer, um, an amazing man, ordained pastor. Um, but what I love most about him is he, I have something in common with him, although mine is minute compared to his. I ran for a state seat, state assembly. He ran for a congressional seat. And he didn't just run for a congressional seat. He ran against uh, the minority leader, Dick Gephardt. And uh, he ran against him twice. And the second time, it was the closest race for Dick Gephardt. He, uh, Bill lost to Gephardt by, by two points. Seriously. And it was the most expensive congressional race in the history of Missouri. Um, they, they obliterated him. They just carpet bombed him with just vicious attacks. And uh, I've never heard him say one bad thing about anyone ever. He is one of the most gentle men I've ever had the privilege to meet. And what you're about to hear in regards to Christmas, and I told Bill, I said, speak on anything you want. And he can speak on a myriad of topics. But the one he chose today, I was back there listening, and I'm taking copious notes. And and one of the things I'm glad about is he didn't preach on some of the things I really um, enjoy because I'm going to be sharing his stuff, pretending as though it's mine. Good preachers borrow, great preachers steal. So if you, you think, wow, Rob's got some insights, I'm just going to tell you, don't, but don't tell anyone. I got them from Bill. Um, but Bill's here with us today, and uh, let me just go through a couple of announcements, and I'll have him come up and speak. First of all, uh, tonight we do have prayer at 5 o'clock, and I'd ask he'd come out because uh, I leave tomorrow for Texas, and I'm going to be meeting with an individual uh, who is interested in establishing a national radio broadcast. Uh, he wants to have... Uh, our sermons uh, go national, which is going to be an expensive venture. And we're going to talk the details out when I go to Texas. I'll be there uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And um, I, I would really covet prayer for that. So if, if you're inclined to prayer and you can join us tonight, that's going to be the topic of our prayer and a number of other things that will be involved in that trip as well. So it's a very, very important meeting that I would just be so thankful if you come out and pray for that. Also, uh, I think this is the last Sunday for those of you who just nailed it in the stock market and uh, you just, you know, you have a huge tax burden coming and you want to write that check, you can do that today. Nobody's laughing. Um, And then, uh, so that was a tithe and offering line. Just thought I'd throw it out there. Okay. We don't pass offering bags, so don't worry. If you didn't want to write the check, nobody's going to look at you. We're not going to pass a bag. We never do that. The Lord purposes beforehand what we're to give, and then, then we just put it in the box in the back. It's our act of worship. 
And uh, so just as the Lord puts it on your heart. And then um, we've got a, a, a New Year's Eve service on the 31st. It's going to go from 10.30 p.m. to 12.30 p.m. And we're going to usher in the new year with praise and just a brief message. It's going to be a lovely night. We're going to have a potluck, which is very, very common for us. People think our name is Calvary Chapel. It's really Calorie Chapel. We love to eat. Anyone like me, just that's all you did? I, I, felt like a, I felt like veal. I just ate and slept. I just didn't do anything. The whole miserable, maybe no one else did that. I did. I confess. Let's pray for Rob right now. No. <clears throat> and then uh, finally, um, this, is, uh, this is an opportunity to go online and get a one-year reading program for the Bible. Um, I, I'm going to tell you, with the coming year and all that we're facing as a nation and as a people, if the Word of God doesn't richly dwell in your home, and I want to speak to the dads, you need to be bathing your family in the, in the Word. The Bible says, bathe your wife in the water of the Word. Bring the word into your home. Read it out loud. I, I commended you and, and, and exhorted you to read uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 on Christmas Day to your family. Uh, let the Bible come into your home this year, and it has to start with you. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. We're in a world that is swirling, wondering what is true. I can tell you right now, the Bible is true. And the more that it's in your home, the healthier your family will be. Uh, the old adage is a man whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. So read your Bible. It will bless you this year. It's so important. Make sure that it's the center theme of your home and watch what God does. It'll be the most amazing year you've ever experienced. And so I think that's it on the announcements. Did I miss any? Nobody even knows if I did, so it doesn't matter. All right. Well, uh, again, uh, Bill Federer... um, He's written over 20 books. Uh, his insight on Islam is phenomenal. His insights on American history, phenomenal. But today, he's given a message I haven't heard, and I was absolutely blown away. So I'm going to get out of the way and let him blow you away. Let's welcome Bill Federer. Thank you, Pastor. Well, and I do get a chance to speak around the country with your pastor, and I am so blown away at how God is using him to inspire and educate and challenge thousands of pastors all around this country. And I know he can't do it without your your support and the prayers. And when I met so many different people that are part of the prayer team, and I thought, that's the key right there. You're praying for your pastor. But uh, join me in thanking God for your pastor, Rob McCoy, and his wife, Michelle. And of course, David and Cindy Lane from this church are the ones that are organizing these events across the country. And so it's amazing to me that this church is bringing forth leaders that are making a tremendous impact across this country. And, uh, and I thank God for them too. So amen, amen. You know, a little side note, I was watching Pastor dedicate the baby and a couple of years ago I was at a church and their baby dedication and the pastor was telling the parents to raise the child in God's word. And I just bought a computer and I was loading software on it before I went to church. And I thought the pastor's telling him to load God's software on that cute little blank hard drive. <laughs> and you think of it, we're spirit, mind, and body. And so your uh, mind is like a super fancy computer. 
It's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body's like a computer case, which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. You know, reds are better than greens. It's like, hello, it doesn't matter what color the computer case is. It's what operating system are you using? Well, you know, what software is written there? And so I thought God made Adam and Eve, and he programmed their software to love God. I mean, they could hear God's voice. They could walk with him in the garden. And God said, oh, yeah, one last thing. Uh, don't open an email from someone you don't know and download the attachment. And Eve got this email that says, you just won a million dollars, click here. Looks good to make one wise, appeals to the lust of the flesh, pride of life, and, and she downloads this virus of selfishness. And what happens when you get a virus It wants to send itself to other computers? There's only one other computer, Adams. He gets the email, he knows he's disobeying God, he clicks on, he downloads this virus of selfishness, and then it gets an all creation, Cain's killing Abel, animals are killing each other, and God says, oh, I'm going to send a, a patch. Uh, it's a manual fix, it's called the law. And the rabbis are like the computer geeks. And every kid is born with this selfishness. It's like every computer you buy is preloaded with the virus. And you have to immediately take it to these computer geeks to get it cleaned up. So every kid's born with this selfishness. Says, you want to steal? Well, here, we're going to recode that. Don't steal. You want to lie? Okay, we're going to recode that. Don't lie. You want to commit adultery? Don't, right? And finally, God says, someday I'll send version 2.0 and I'll write it on your hard drive. Right? He'll write it on our hearts. And, uh, and that happened for uh, the apostles on the day of Pentecost. That's when they got the download, right? You know? And they went from denying Christ. Now there's a bull for Christ. They could hear God's voice. And, and uh, you know, I thought I was at a, a Calvary Chapel in Maine, uh, and uh, Ken Graves is the pastor. And uh, they, they have wireless in the church. And I was talking to the guy afterwards. He goes, yeah, we got wireless. And I, I got the computer with the router and everything. And I can see who's all online. And I thought, you know what? Seeking God is like wanting to be logged in to his cloud, right? And God can see everybody who's logged into him. So when you are seeking God, it's like you're logged in and he can say, hey, yeah. And, uh, and then I had a computer crash and I lost a whole lot of stuff. And somebody told me about the, the iCloud, you know, the Dropbox. So you can have all your files. And when you're in wireless, it automatically backs up. And I thought, someday your computer case is going to crash. Someday your hard drive is going to crash and you're going to die. And then God's going to give you a resurrected body. And he's going to have this lightning fast brain that he's going to give you. I mean, it's just going to be absolutely tremendous. But you wouldn't be you without all your memory files. You'd just be a really nice body with a really fast brain. So he downloads from the cloud. So God has all of your memory files stored up in his cloud. And he's going to download and he's going to scrub all the sin out. But he's going to put back. So you'll be you. You'll be able to remember everybody, you know. And um, did you like that? Yes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's not my, my talk. That was free. So, um, so here is a book that I put together. It's called There Really is a Santa Claus and the history of St. Nicholas and Christmas holiday traditions. So this is a, a spoiler alert. We're going to be talking a little bit about Santa Claus. So if you've got any of these little ones you don't want to know the real thing, you can uh, uh, distract them here. Anyway, we're going to start with some scriptures. Uh, John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so that means Jesus is the Word, and he was there. In, nothing was made without him. So that means he had to be there in the book of Genesis. So let's look through the book of Genesis and see if we can find where Jesus is, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God, what? Said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together. And uh, 
God said, let the earth bring forth grass. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly moving creatures that have life. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of its kind. And God said, let us make man in our own image. Nothing was created without God saying. What do you say? You say words. And so there's Jesus, there's the Word. So you got God the Father, you got the spoken Word, and then the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And when the Word was spoken is when the Holy Spirit brought forth life. And so you have the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, right? And so Jesus is the Word. It says in Colossians, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness into his kingdom of his dear Son, for by him all things are created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, and by him all things consist. Hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1, nine. that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. And so Jesus was born... And uh, it's interesting how they had an emperor named uh, Augustus Caesar. He controlled the entire world, and he had his version of an NSA. He wanted to count everybody. He wanted a global tax. Something about dictators wanting to be able to count and keep track of everybody. And so uh, that all the world should be taxed. But this required Mary and Joseph to leave Galilee and go to Bethlehem. And so Jesus was born at the same city that God prophesied. So God can even use the, the the wicked to bring about his will. And so then the angels, I apologize, this has uh, got a fast trigger on this uh, <laughs> clicker. And um, so the angels appear to the shepherds, the three wise men come, and Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And... Uh, so the church was born into a one-world anti-Christian government, the Roman Empire. You know how our world is moving in the direction of a one-world anti-Christian government? The church was born into that. Evidently, God's not afraid of one-world anti-Christian governments because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And um, so the first three centuries of Christianity, there were 10 major persecutions and Christians were thrown to the lions. And um, uh, then finally... Um, you had an emperor named Galerius, Galenius, and he temporarily suspended the persecutions. And so there was a revival, and a whole lot of people, especially in the military, became Christian. Then in 285, there was an emperor, Diocletian, and he lost some battles with Persia. And he asked his generals why, and the general said, you've neglected the Roman gods. And so Diocletian orders all the military to return to worshiping the Roman gods. Well, this forced all the Christians out of the military. Sort of like today, we're seeing the pushing of the uh, radical homosexual agenda and others. It's causing the Christians to either go out of the military or into the closet, and fewer Christians are going into the military. But in Diocletian's case, once he got all the Christians out of the military, he decided to use the military to force the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods. And so he goes systematically, province by province, tearing down churches, burning the scriptures, uh, cutting out their tongues, boiling them alive. It goes on for 30 years. And uh, the Christians pray, and it was during this time that St. Nicholas was born. So St. Nicholas is the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. 
He is to the Greek Orthodox what St. Peter is to Roman Catholics. That's how important St. Nicholas is in the early church history. So by the third century, these red dots are where there's Christian churches and see how the revival has caused it to spread. And so uh, St. Nicholas was born in the city of Patara, Asia Minor. Now this is right around where the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were and Ephesus and Colossae and Galatia, those New Testament letters are written. And um, the story is that his parents were wealthy and elderly and they died when a plague swept through town, leaving him as a young man with a lot of money. And he was a Christian and he decided he was going to help the poor, but he wanted to do it anonymously because he wanted the glory to go to God. And so the story is there was a merchant in the town of Patara who had gone bankrupt. And back then the creditors would come and not only take your house and lands, they would take your children. And uh, this merchant had three beautiful daughters. He knew if they were taken, it would probably mean sex trafficking and slavery and prostitution, a horrible life. We read the stories of these girls in Syria that are captured by ISIS and and, uh, made sex slaves in the Boko Haram in Nigeria, these girls captured. Well, this father did not want his daughters taken. So he had an idea. He thought if he could hurry up and marry the daughters off, the creditors couldn't take them. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. Well, Nicholas hears the problem and late one night throws a bag of money in the window. And there's St. Nicholas throwing the bag of money in. Here's the dad and he's got these three daughters. So the oldest daughter is able to get married. It was a big buzz, talk of the town. And then he throws the money in for the second daughter. There's Nicholas throwing the bags of money in, and, um, and she's able to get married. And then uh, he, when he throws the money in for the third daughter, the dad runs outside and catches him. And so that's the origin of the, uh, secret, the tradition of secret gift giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death, which was December 6th of 343 AD. And the midnight visits and St. Nicholas, and, and they thought that the, uh, the money might have fallen in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. And so uh, here is um, the uh, church window, and it's got Nicholas putting the bag of money in, and here's these three girls picking it up, and then it says underneath... It says he provides a dowry for three girls. And so he's the patron saint of pawnbrokers. <laughs> you think, what? <laughs> well, uh, pawnbrokers say, well, we're helping people, families out in their time of financial need. And so pawnbrokers hold, they have three gold balls outside of their shop. That's reminiscent of the three bags of gold that Nicholas threw in the window to help this family out in their time of financial need. See the three gold balls and everything? little bit of a stretch, but whatever. And um, so Nicholas had given away all of his money, and he decided he was going to join a monastery, which was the trend of the church in the 4th and 5th century. It was this hyperpietism that was, if you really became a Christian, you were expected to give away all your money and live as a poor person, or give away all your money and live in a cave, or give away all your money and join a monastery where you're locked away from everybody the rest of your life. It was this me-focused salvation that was saying, I want to get myself holier, but it was sort of an abandonment to any responsibility to be salt and light to the culture. And so Nicholas had given away all of his money, and he decides, okay, I'm going to join the monastery. So he goes on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and he's about to join this monastery when somehow the Lord tells him not to hide his light under a bushel. And so he decides to go back to Asia Minor, and he gets off at a city called Myra. And now, so this is right around where there's Ephesus over here, and Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia. So this is right around that area. And so there's Myra. And so he gets off the boat, and unbeknownst to him, 
it was, uh, the bishop had died. It was a big port city. These are the ruins of it today. This is actually the St. Nicholas Church, and this is the statue of St. Nicholas, and there's some ruins of it. But this is the city, the ruins of Myra. Today it's called Demre. And so Nicholas gets off, but the bishop had died. And the church leaders could not decide who the next bishop's going to be. And so they're fasting and praying. They have their prayer meeting, right, a Sunday night. They're praying, and one of the church leaders has a dream that the first person to church the next morning was to be named Nicholas, and he was to be their next bishop. Nicholas's habit was to fast all night and not eat until after communion at church. That's where they called it the break fast, or as we say, breakfast was to break the fast because they'd fast all night before they... And then, um, so he's the first person to church and they ask his name and he says, Nicholas, they say, come here. And they bring him into the room where they're all praying. And they say, you're supposed to be our next bishop. Well, he was not too thrilled with the idea because the Roman emperor Diocletian was arresting bishops and killing them. So it was sort of like, you be the bishop. No, 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 you, I insist, you be the bishop. No, no, you for you be the bishop. It's like those uh, old army movies where they have a, uh, a captain goes before a line of his men and says, who wants to volunteer for this dangerous mission, you know? And everybody takes one step back, <laughs> except one person. <laughs> like, what? Oh, you volunteered. Um, I don't know if it was like that, but nevertheless, Nicholas did become the bishop and he was arrested and he was put in prison. And so he's awaiting death uh, and then the uh, emperor, Diocletian, is struck with an intestinal disease that's so painful he abdicates the throne on May 1st, 305 AD. And you have to appreciate the poetic humor in this. By this time, the Roman emperors had been declaring themselves a god and sprinkling gold dust in their hair and demanding that their image be worshipped. Right? Julius Caesar started the cult of Julius Caesar and made Mark Anthony his high priest. You know, and, um, and so this, when he stepped down, it was sort of like a god resigning. I just think that's sort of funny. Um, so Diocletian steps down. The next emperor is Galerius. He continues the persecution of Christians. He is struck with an intestinal disease, and he dies. And so now there's no Roman emperor. And in Rome, when there's no uh, Roman vice vice emperor ready to go. It's a toss up between the generals. And so there were four generals and their attitude was uh, the general would declare himself the next emperor. And if you didn't like it, come and fight. And so two of the generals were quickly defeated and it came down to two that was Constantine and Maxentius. And you see the soldiers pledged allegiance to their general, not to the flag, not to the Republic, but to their general. And they would go to their death if the general ordered them to go into battle. And so there's two generals, Maxentius is in Rome, and Constantine is in Britain. And when there's a statue there in York, England, and that's where Constantine was. His men get the word that the emperor died. They surround Constantine, and they say, Hail Caesar. You're the man. We'll back you. And so Constantine marches toward Rome, and they have the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 313 AD. Now, tradition has it that the day before the battle, Constantine saw the sign of Christ in the sky. And... Uh, he puts it on all of his shields and symbols, and he wins. Well, what was this sign of Christ? Reportedly, it was the first two letters of the Greek name which stood for Christ. So we abbreviate states with two letters. The Greeks abbreviated names with two letters. And so the name of Christ, Christus, is the well, way that we say it in Latin. But in Greek, it's this is the X, and it's called the chi, and it makes the K 
ka sound for Christ. And then the second letter looks like a P, but it makes the R sound in the Greek, and it's called the Rho. So these first two letters is called the Chi Rho, and it's the X and the P. And so you see this on a lot of the church uh, symbols in the third and fourth century. And then Constantine heard the sign, in hoc signo vinces, which means in this sign you'll be invincible. He wins the battle of the Milvian Bridge, and he see this the church artwork of the big X and the P on all the third and fourth century stuff in Rome. And then in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you'll be invincible. And it, over the centuries, got shortened just to the chi, just to the X, and it was called the Christ's cross, or as we say today, the crisscross. And it became for where you would, Xmas, X was not crossing out Christ, it was the Greek letter that stood for Christ. It was the chi, the, the Greek, the Christ cross, hyphen M-A-S, that's Christmas. And then it came down as the form of a written oath. So if you're in court, put your hand on a Bible. Well, if you're going to swear to keep your word on a document, you would sign at the Christ's cross, right? Put your X here, right, the Christ's cross, and, that, and then you would kiss it to show sincerity. That's come down to us as the X's and the O's on the bottom of a valentine. I swear before Christ that I'm going to keep my pledge to you, and I'm going to kiss it to show sincerity. It's also where we get the cross my heart, swear to tell the truth. Well, what's crossing on? That's the Christ's cross, right? And um, anyway, so Constantine legalizes Christianity, and uh, Nicholas is let out of jail, and he now preaches publicly against paganism. And they had still human sacrifice going on. They had infant exposure. It was their version of abortion. The mother would bear the child, and in the Roman culture, she would lay it at the father's feet. And if he picked it up and liked it and thought they could afford it, they'd keep it. But if not, and he didn't pick it up, she would have to put it in a box, set it outside, expose it to the elements, and it would die. And so a lot of the early Christians would hear these babies crying and collect them and raise them in their orphanages. And um, so here's Nicholas, and he's preaching uh, against these sins. Well, then the one uh, was the temple to Diana in Ephesus. And uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, 127 huge pillars and temple prostitutes. It was the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. Nicholas preaches against this, and the people tear the temple to Diana down. And the apostle Paul preached there in Acts 19. And remember, the people said, great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. Her image fell from heaven, a little pagan deity image. And so Nicholas was a fiery preacher that stood against all kinds of sexual immorality. He probably would have stood up for a marriage being a man and a woman. And if he were alive today. And, uh, and then there's the Arian heresy. And for the first three centuries of Christianity, Christians did not live long enough to argue over doctrine. I mean, they were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum. And so after Constantine stops the persecution is when the first heresy called Arianism. A guy named Arius said Jesus was a little less than God. He was a created being, and Arius made this catchy song. And so the Visigoths, who were immigrants that had come into Rome, they converted to Arianism, and it began to split the church. And since Constantine had made Christianity the religion of the empire, the splitting of the Christian church was splitting his empire. He was having a political fallout. So Constantine said, I don't understand theology. All you bishops get together at Nicaea and settle it. They did. They wrote the Nicene Creed, which is still said in churches around the, country, the world today. And so here is the bishops, and in the hole there is Arius. So here's all these bishops in Nicaea, and there's down there is Arius. Now, the story is that Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and he was so upset at this guy Arius for starting this first mother of all heresies that Nicholas slapped him across the face. So jolly old St. Nick had a little temper. (laughs) Better watch out if he's coming to town. And um, anyway, uh, I was looking on the Internet for the picture of this 
And uh, there was this one, uh, it says, uh, St. Nicholas, Nikolai, and it says, I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics. I just ran out of presents. (laughs) Anyway, the Greeks have lots of stories. Some are more believable than others, but one, there is a famine. He goes down to the dock because Myra is a big port city, and he uh, asks the sailors to unload some of their grain that was coming from North Africa to Rome. He says, unload it to feed my people, and he promises that God will bless them. On their return trip, they said that the grain that was left in their ship had multiplied, and they had more than enough. Sort of the little widow's meal barrel story. And then there was a storm, and it was so bad the sailors couldn't get back. The fishermen thought they were going to drown. They get Nicholas, and he prays, and the sea becomes calm. And so he, sort of like Jesus calm in the sea, so he's considered the patron saint of sailors. So pawnbrokers and sailors. And, um, and then there's a corrupt governor, and he is Roman. He is planning on executing some soldiers to cover up his corruption. And they run and get Bishop Nicholas. He runs down to where the execution is about to take place, breaks through the crowd, grabs the sword out of the executioner's hand, and then by the Holy Spirit, he begins to read the mail of the corrupt governor. He begins to tell everybody what this corrupt governor has been doing. Well, the governor knows nobody could know these details other than God. And so he says, uh-oh, I'm really in trouble. And so he begs Nicholas to pray for him that God would have mercy on his soul. So here's Bishop Nicholas taking the sword out of the executioner's hand there. And so he's somebody that stood up to corrupt politicians. He's somebody that would have gotten involved in politics. If somebody says, hey, we're not going to allow that, that terrible stuff going on in politics. He had courage. And so, again, St. Nicholas is to the Greek church what St. Peter is to the Roman church. Uh, an emperor named Justinian, uh, his um, name, um, Emperor Justinian, he built a big church and named it after Nicholas. This is the ruins of it today. It's in Demre, Turkey. Um, and uh, the reason it's in ruins is because the Muslims have a law that if a Christian church um, falls into disrepair, you're not allowed to repair it. And so they would just gradually over the centuries fall apart. And then Vladimir was the um, emperor of Russia, and he decides to convert to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and he adopted Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia. That's why so many people in Russia are named Nicholas or Nikolai. Interesting story, the first chronicle of Russia. It's their first court documents, and Vladimir had decided he was going to get rid of all the pagan gods and threw them in the Dnieper River, and he was going to embrace monotheism. And when word got out, some Muslim ambassadors went to Vladimir, and it says that he listened intently as they said that paradise was filled full of virgins, he says, because he was fond of women. But then when they told him that he could no longer drink alcohol, he said, we cannot have this because drink is the joy of the Russes, the Russians. So I think it's sort of funny that Russia did not convert to Islam because Vladimir liked to drink. The, the vodka or whatever. Um, Catholics sent ambassadors. He didn't convert. The, the Jews sent ambassadors. And he goes, let me get this straight. You offended your God. And he chased you out. Now, why should I follow you again? But finally, the Greek Orthodox Church sent ambassadors to Russia. And the Greeks spoke the language of the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. And so like, hey, this is our book, right? And their land was where John spoke and Paul spoke in Ephesus. And so they said, hey, these letters in these New Testament are written to cities on our land. And um, anyway, the um, largest Christian church in the world was in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Greek Empire. And it was 165 feet high, 102 foot across dome, four acres of gold mosaics. The Russian ambassadors went there and said it was like stepping into heaven. And so they go back, and that's when Vladimir decides to convert to the Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox Church. Anyway, so there's a whole lot of St. Nicholas churches in Russia. And uh, then the Muslims invade, 
and the Muslims would destroy the Christian churches. And uh, the Muhammad dies in 632 A.D., and within 100 years of his death, Muslims conquer Syria, which used to be Christian. Syria was the first country that was completely Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria until Caliph Umar conquered it. And then the Muslims conquered Jerusalem, and Muslims conquered Egypt. Egypt was completely Christian for six centuries, evangelized by Mark. that wrote the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until Amir ibn Alas conquers it. And there used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. Boom, all conquered by the Umayyad Muslims. And then in the year 711, 80,000 Muslims invade Spain. And in 10 years, they conquer Spain because they're riding Arabian horses with stirrups and have scimitar swords. The Europeans are still on foot with heavy metal swords. And then they conquer southern France, and they're finally stopped outside of Paris at the Battle of Tours in 732 A.D., exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad in 632 A.D. They go from Arabia to Paris in 100 years, setting up their ISIS, their Islamic State. They call it a caliphate. Charles Martel was the one that stopped him, and it took 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And uh, anyway, so the Muslims control Spain, North Africa, all of the Middle East into Persia, and then going into Eastern Europe. And as they're attacking into what is the Byzantine Empire, all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslims. And Ephesus and Thyatira and Sardis, and and as they finally uh, conquered, they would destroy the graves of the Christian saints. Sort of like the grave of Jonah. It existed from 700 B.C. up until last year when the ISIS Muslims destroyed it. There was The sultan in Egypt had a commission to raid the Egyptian pyramids of all their treasures and then destroy them. And then they would do the same thing wherever they went because anything pre-Islam would they consider pagan. So Muhammad said, leave no high grave standing nor a work of art without obliterating it. So they would destroy the graves. And so the Christians did not want the grave of their famous St. Nicholas destroyed. So they moved it over from Myra over to a little town called Bari, Italy in the year 1087. And now, so we got Greek Orthodox here and the most popular Greek saint is moved over to Catholic Italy. And so there's Bari. And um, so the Pope, Urban II, dedicates a cathedral called Cathedral Nicolo de Bari, Cathedral of Nicholas of Bari. And uh, that pope, Urban II, had so many of these Greeks fleeing the Muslim invasion, he goes to the Council of Claremont a couple years later, and he begs the European leaders to send help. He says, Jesus said, leave the 99, go after the one. And so he sends help. It's called the First Crusade. So the same pope that had Western Europe embrace the traditions of St. Nicholas is the same pope that calls for help, which turned into the First Crusade, right? So the Muslims had 14 centuries of crusades, and the Europeans only had two centuries of crusades. Maybe a million died in these, 240 million died in the Muslim crusades. And uh, now now that the St. Nicholas traditions are in Italy, the gift-giving was so popular that St. Francis of Assisi, sort of in protest, came up with a nativity scene. That Jesus married Joseph, donkeys in the manger, saying, look, all this gift-giving is fine, but we need to get back to the real reason for the season. Jesus, the Son of God, was born in a manger. And uh, can you see that okay? And um, so uh, then the Reformation begins in 1517. By this time, there is a saint's day for every single day of the year, different saint for every day, and they would pray to him. And so Martin Luther thought this was a distraction from Christ. So Martin Luther moves all the gift-giving to December 25th because St. Nicholas's day was December 6th. So he moves it to December 25th, which had just been a church service uh, from the third century on. I'll tell you about that later. And so Martin Luther says, all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Christkindle, 
right? Chris means Christ. Kindle, like kindergarten, kindercare. Kind means child. And so Chris Kindle means Christ child. And so over the years, Chris Kindle got pronounced Chris Kringle. So Chris Kringle is really Chris Kindle, which means Christ child. And, um, and so Martin Luther, uh, the, the story is that he was um, coming home one night and saw the sky twinkling with the stars, and he puts a tree up in his house, and he puts candles in the branches, and he tells his children, this is the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. And this is an old wood cut where they would carve it and uh, you know, stamp it with ink and so forth. So here's Martin Luther, here's his wife, here's some of his kids with all their toys, and what's this kid? What has he got? A crossbow. You can put your eye out with that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the BB gun movie? You know? <laughs> Little boys like things that you can shoot, you know. And uh, anyway, so here's Martin Luther. This is a Christmas tree, and they put a crest scene at the bottom. Now, the tree has an interesting history of its own. And uh, so Germans, they were immigrants that had come into the Roman border, and they were pagans. And they had a god named Thor. That's where we get the word Thor's Day, Thursday, right? And there's a movie about Thor. Well, the Thor, the one they had was a little bit uh, different because they had an oak tree. And they thought that Thor lived in the oak tree, and they would have human sacrifice in front of this oak tree. And so the uh, St. Boniface, he's called the apostle to the Germans around 716, he is courageously goes in to the um, German Geismar, the city, and he takes an axe and he chops down the oak tree of Thor. And so here he is chopping down Thor's oak tree. And um, there he is chopping it down. And... Um, uh, so he just chopped it down. He's holding up the cross there. There's all the, the pagan Germans. And, um, and so here's Henry Van Dyke writes the first Christmas tree in 1906. And he talks about St. Boniface. He's sometimes called Winfred, apostle to the Germans. The day before Christmas, so this is Christmas Eve in the year of our Lord, 722. Uh, he chops down the tree and then there's a little fir tree next to it. And he says, um, not a drop of blood shall fall tonight, for this is the birth night of Christ, the Son of the All-Father, Savior of the world. This little tree, pointing to this fir tree, the young child of the forest, shall be a home tree tonight. It is the wood of peace, for your houses are built of fir. It is a sign of endless life, for its branches are evergreen. See how it points toward heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it with loving gifts of kindness. So here's St. Boniface with his axe, and he just chopped down the oak tree, you know. And, um, and now the lights have their own history. The first mention of lights at this time of year is Hanukkah. What was Hanukkah? Well, remember the Jews, uh, they got taken captive from Jerusalem to Babylon for 70 years. Then they go back under Cyrus, and he helps them rebuild the temple. And so it's now Persia, but then Alexander the Great conquers, brings in his Greek culture and all the naked statues and all the sensualism of the Greeks. And, um, and Alexander the Great dies, and his four generals divide up his empire, and one named Seleucius takes the area of Persia. And the Seleucid king in 165 AD was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he decides he's going to wipe out Judaism. And so he goes into Jerusalem, trashes the temple, and makes them, the priests you know, kill pigs to try to defile them or whatever. And this one priest decides he's not going to kill the pig. He kills the soldier. And his sons jump up and kill soldiers. And they run off into the mountains. They start a guerrilla warfare. They finally drive the Muslims out of Jerusalem. And they're cleaning out the temple. And they see how um, the candle lampstand is there. And they want to relight it. But there's only enough oil for one day. And it takes a week to make the special oil. And so they pour the oil in, and it stays lit for a whole week. And so that is the, um, the Hanukkah. 
called the Feast of the Dedication. And in John chapter 10, it says that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, walking among Solomon's porch in the temple. So Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. And so the, the lights at Christmas time, at the, that time of the year, originally go back to this Feast of Dedication. The tree goes back to the, the St. Boniface saying, chop down the oak tree, make it a fir. And it was Martin Luther that brings the lights and the tree together and says it's like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. Did you like that? All right. And so now England is a little different. Remember how Martin Luther wanted to focus back on Christ? Well, Henry VIII brings the Reformation to England, but not because he had a spiritual experience. He just wanted another wife. The Pope would not recognize his divorce, and uh, he decides he's going to be his own Pope. And he starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head. He goes on to have six wives. Their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. Well, a group started that wanted to purify the Church of England, and so they were nicknamed the Puritans. So now you have the two groups in England, the Anglicans with the king at the top, and these Puritans wanting to purify it, and it begins to be a little tense. Well, now Henry VIII, he is not a real spiritual guy, and so he decides uh, to get rid of the saints' days, but he brings back an old Roman holiday called Saturnalia. Because Britain used to be a Roman colony. And Saturn was the god of feasting and plenty and merriment, and they would have their party at the end of the year. And so during Henry VIII's time in England, Christmas became this carousing and drinking and wassailing where they'd take a drink of booze and throw the rest of it on some plant. And um, sort of like Mardi Gras. You know, Mardi Gras used to be a spiritual day. It was the day before Lent when you would fast 40 days before Easter, and now it's this lewd party in New Orleans. Well, that's sort of what happened under Henry VIII in England. Christmas was just drinking and partying time. And uh, so if you've ever seen the Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, there's the spirit of Christmas present, and you're looking at this guy asking yourself, who is he? He sort of looks like Santa, but he sort of looks like some Roman god. Well, it was the Roman god. It was Saturn, but they Christianized him and called him Father Christmas. They couldn't call him St. Nicholas because the saints were outlawed. And so, uh, so during this time, it gets sort of uh, the, the Puritans uh, preach against Christmas. And they have a civil war in 1640, and the Puritans win. And the Puritans take over England, and they outlaw Christmas. They said, can God be honored by mad mirth and hard drinking? Can the Son of God be honored by drunkenness and so forth? And so when the Puritans uh, settled Massachusetts, they had a five-shilling fine for anybody caught celebrating Christmas, so they were really dry. And so the pilgrims, when they came over, this is uh, the captain of the Mayflower, Christopher Jones, writes, at anchor in Plymouth Harbor, Christmas Day, but not observed by these colonists, they being opposed to all saints' days, etc. A large party went ashore. This morning, they fell timber, began their building. They erected their first house for common use. And so the pilgrims did not celebrate Christmas. They said the Sabbath is their holy day, and all the rest of the days are the same. And so William Bradford, the pilgrims were really into conscience. The government shouldn't force you to, to believe or not believe. They should you know, force your conscience. And so William Bradford says, one more incident, rather amusing. On Christmas Day, the governor called the people out to work. And most of the new company, so they had a second boatload of pilgrims come across. Most of the new company excused themselves and said it went against their consciences to work on that day. So the governor told them that if they made it a matter of conscience, that he would spare them till they were better informed. So he went with the rest and left them. But on work, returning from work at noon, he found them at play in the streets, some pitching the bar, some stoolball, and other like sports. And so he t went to them and took away their games and told them that it was against his conscience that they should play with, with and others work. If they made it keeping of the day a matter of devotion, let them remain in their houses, but let there should be no gaming and reveling in the streets. 
Anyway, so the pilgrims did not celebrate Christmas, but the Dutch. The Dutch loved Christmas, and the Dutch loved St. Nicholas. And uh, you know how Catholics say St. Peter's at the gates of heaven? Well, the Greeks and then the Dutch do a take on the book of Revelation, where it says Jesus will return at the end of the world to judge the living and the dead, riding a white horse. And the saints will come back with him, riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is a saint, so he'll be one of those riding a white horse. He just gets to come back once a year for a little mini judgment. A little checkup on the kids, make sure they're on the right track, see if they're naughty and nice. And so um, the saints come from where? Heaven, the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. Well, that turns into the North Pole. And the Lamb's Book of Life and Book of Works turns into the Book of the Naughty and the Nice. And the angels turn into the elves. And in Norway, they didn't have horses, so he's riding a reindeer. And so you can begin to see these biblical themes start getting to drift. But um, in Holland, they still have St. Nicholas coming once a year dressed as a bishop riding a white horse. And, uh, and he's coming from Spain. And, he, um, and so here he is on his white horse getting a little pre-judgment day stuff. And he's dropping presents down the chimneys of his favorites. And uh, who's that little guy he's got with him? He keeps coming up. So in Norway, they didn't have horses, so there's the reindeer. And uh, here's the book. And so here's the bishop. See the cross on his hat. And he's looking at the little kids, seeing if they've been naughty and nice, a little judgment day type thing. And uh, look at this little kid. He doesn't look too happy. Oh, I'm about to cry. Oh. And then you see this guy here. So the Dutch do a little take. And they say that St. Nicholas gives presents. But he also has with him a Moorish costumed helper, Zwarte Piet, Black Peter. And the Moors were the Muslims. And he's coming from Spain. Well, the Muslims controlled Spain for 700 years, and they enslaved over a million Europeans. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe through the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians, and the head of the order was called the Ransomer. And they would collect alms and donations at church services and then go under a white flag to the Muslims and try to ransom back your friend who was captured right, um, from, by the Muslims. And so they would tell the little boys in Holland that if you're good, St. Nicholas will give you a present. And if you're naughty... This little Zwarte Pete guy will put you in a gunny sack and take you back to Spain and sell you into Muslim slavery. <laughs> and uh, one of the gentlemen at the first service, there was a couple, and the husband was raised in Holland. And he goes, that's right, we were really scared. And, but, but now this wasn't Christmas Eve, this was the day before St. Nicholas Day. So he said for him it was December 5th in the evening because December 6th was the St. Nicholas Day. And so, um, but look at this, here's Bishop Nicholas, he's grabbing the little kids, shoving them in the little helper. And look at the little girl, and the parents are like, look, I told you, you should have been a good kid, sorry. And uh, I, I love this one. So here they are carrying the little kid, and the little kid's like, please, please. And here's the good kids dressed in white, and they're like, please don't take our little brother. And the parents are like, well, I guess they got to, you know, tough, sorry kid, you know. And um, look at this. I'd like that Santa to come to your house. <laughs> you little brat. <laughs> You're there, shove him in the bag. <laughs> this is really scary. I'd like that guy shoving you in the bag. Anyway, I had uh, 11 brothers and sisters growing up. I have five brothers and five sisters. And, um, and I was fifth. So I got beat up on, but I got to beat up, you know. And, but I had uh, four little brothers, and I, I would have loved to have tormented them with that story. We may not see it tomorrow. Maybe the last time. Svarte Pete will come and get you. And I was actually doing a call-in radio show, and somebody called in and said they were raised in an area of Europe where they had this tradition. And he says that every Christmas Eve, the little boys would make sure to go to bed at night with a pocket knife in their pocket. 
I said, why is that? He goes, that's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Varte P took us, you know? Anyway, so the Dutch loved St. Nicholas. The Dutch settled New Amsterdam. It became New York. And so here is the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam. And at the front of their ship, they had not a Poseidon, not a mermaid, not a Neptune, but a St. Nicholas. Why? Because he was the patron saint of sailors. And the Dutch were sailors. The Dutch had the largest merchant military fleet. They had an island off the coast of Japan for two centuries when they had monopoly on trade. They had Jakarta, India. They had uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, and then parts of India, Goa, India. And then they had South Africa and Recife, South America. They had all the Dutch had this worldwide empire and they were sailors. And so St. Nicholas was the patron saint of sailors, and so that's why they put a St. Nicholas in front of their boat. And so they settled in New Amsterdam. And look at this. The oldest church in New Amsterdam was the St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church. The Dutch, their very first church in New Amsterdam, founded in 1642, was the Dutch Reformed Church of St. Nicholas, around where near Battery Park is in New York. And it grew, and the congregation had the largest Protestant church in Manhattan. It was called the Cathedral, the Protestant Cathedral of Manhattan. And it was this Dutch Reformed Church of St. Nicholas on the corner of 48th Street and 5th Avenue. Founded in 1928, and it lasted all the way up until 1949, when the city became financial and the residential district moved out, and the church fathers decided to sell the building to the Sinclair Oil Company, who tore the church down and built the oil building. But they, those congregation moved, and they called themselves the Mar- Marble Collegiate Church, where Norman Vincent Peale was pastor, and also Donald Trump was a member, okay? <laughs> so it's a real church. And then in Holland, they have um, a St. Nicholas Basilica, and uh, so here he is dressed as a bishop with his staff, giving the presents to the little kids. And, um, and so this is the Dutch. Um, now, New York was taken over by the British, New Amsterdam turned into New York in 1664, and so there was a writer in New York named Washington Irving. We know him because he wrote Rip Van Winkle and Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And he wrote a book called Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of New York. And Knickerbocker was a made-up name. And it was so popular of a book that that's why we have the New York Knicks basketball team. And in his book, he talks about uh, a Dutch city in Holland named Gotham. And so he refers to this Dutch colony in New Amsterdam as Gotham, and that's where the New York got the name Gotham City. The Batman, remember that? So this uh, Washington Irving was this influential writer. Well, he writes this. He says, St. Nicholas rode over the housetops, drawing forth magnificent presents, dropping them down the chimneys of his favorites. Now he visits us but one night a year when he rattles down the chimneys, confining his presents merely to children, stockings found in the morning mysteriously filled. And Washington Irving's exchanged Nicholas's bishop's robes for a typical Dutch outfit of a stock and hat, long pair of trunk hose, and a large pipe. So now he still calls St. Nicholas. He's just not dressed as a bishop. He's dressed in a Dutch outfit. Laying his finger beside his nose, gave a significant look, then mounting his wagon, returned over the treetops and disappeared. And so we still have the stockings by the fire. And then in New York in 1823, you have Clement Moore. He was an Anglican Hebrew professor. And he wrote a poem for his children called A Visit from St. Nicholas. So he still calls St. Nicholas. And we know the poem. And it was, uh, "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be, soon be there." And uh, then another, and what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tannery deer with a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be 
St. Nick. So he's still St. Nick, but he's shrunk in size a little bit. He was dressed in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he flung on his back. He looked like a peddler opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples all merry. His chimps were like, cheeks were like roses, nose like a cherry. The droll little mouth thrown up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was white as snow. The stump of a pipe yelled tight in his teeth, and the smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. When did he take up tobacco? That came from the American Indians, right? You know, there's Virginia tobacco shipping back to England. And um, a broad little face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. A chubby, plump, right jolly old elf. I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself, so he still shrunk a little bit. Uh, stockings were filled, turns with a jerk, laying his finger aside his nose, give, giving a nod up the chimney. He rose, and I, whoa. Uh, this has this got a fast trigger on this clicker here. I apologize. And, um, and I heard him exclaim, ear he drove out of sight, happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. And uh, so the next is Civil War. An illustrator for Harper's Weekly magazine is Thomas Nast. He's the one who gave us the Republican elephant and the Democrat mule. And he's the first one to put a North Pole sign behind a picture of St. Nicholas talking to the Union troops with a Union flag. And, uh, and so this was actually a political jab at the South during the Civil War to say St. Nicholas is associated with the North. Prior to this, saints came from where? Heaven, the Celestial City, the New Jerusalem, but now he's coming from the North Pole. And um, so... Uh, the next is Haddon Sunblum. He was the artist that gave us the Quaker, gave us the Quaker Oats Man and Aunt Jemima for the ads. Well, he is, was hired by Coca-Cola, and he did a painting of St. Nicholas, which is St. Nicholas is the Dutch pronunciation, or Santa Claus is the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas, right? So the Dutch pronounced it Sant Nicholas, you know, like Santa Fe and Santa Monica, and Sant means saint, and Nicholas, they shortened it, so it's Sinterklaas or Santa Claus. So Santa Claus is Dutch for St. Nicholas. So here is uh, Santa Claus uh, drinking Coke. And uh, now he's full grown again. He's got the rosy complexion and the nice beard. And he's a huggable grandfathery guy that you just want to give a big hug to. And um, here he is smoking Lucky Strikes. <laughs> I guess the pipe turned into cigarettes. It's like, uh, here is with some camel and some Prince Albert and stuff like that. Anyway, um, and so it all started with a real guy. So the, the, the Saint, Santa Claus is the Dutch St. Nicholas, but actually there really was the, the St. Nicholas guy. And he lived during Roman times. And he loved Jesus so much that he went into the ministry. And he, he decided he was going to be a bishop. And he was imprisoned for his Christian faith, and he did not deny Christ even though he was facing death. And then he got out and he preached against sexual immorality and stood up for a Bible uh, morality. And he stood against corrupt politicians and uh, would have gotten involved in politics and said, hey, we're not going to allow this. And then he uh, stood up for the Bible and the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. But we remember him most because he gave to the poor, but he wanted to do it anonymously because he wanted the glory to go to God. And so it's a tremendous story. Now, the... Um, uh, Christmas, why December 25th? And people say, was it a pagan day? Well, the first three centuries of Christianity, the focus was on the day of Easter, and it had been the day of Passover. And the Jews had figured Passover by their lunar calendar. But when Constantine, remember him? He had the Council of Nicaea. At that same Council of Nicaea, he said, hey, this is great. All these bishops from around the, the, the Roman world, let's, let's unify by having a common date to celebrate Easter. And instead of going to looking at the Jews when their Passover is, let's have the date on a Sunday. Well, now, making it on a Sunday necessitated a different formula because the Jewish Passover could fall any day during the week. And by insisting that it be on a Sunday, they came up with the formula of 
the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Just sort of arbitrarily came up with this, and they made these big charts, and over the centuries, the charts got off, you know, by 10 days because of the little gradual shifting of the calendar. And, um, uh, but that was the beginning of the separating of the Jewish church from the Gentile church. And you look back and think, was it really necessary? We could have, we could have celebrated Easter any day of the week, you know, I mean, but, and, and kept the Jewish church and the Gentile church together. But, uh, but now they've split so much that if you go to somebody and say, hey, you know, Easter is really the Jewish Passover? They're like, really? What a coincidence. <laughs> no, it's not a coincidence. Jesus was the Passover lamb, and he was crucified on Passover as the Passover lamb. And uh, anyway, so after the third century is when they began to ask when Christmas was. Uh, now, it's important to understand during those first three centuries of Christianity, and those 10 major persecutions, they were destroying Christian scriptures and Christian documents and Christian books. So that's why it's hard for us to go back and actually trace a lot of this, because the Romans destroyed it. But the tradition of the church is uh, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Jesus. What's that? Zacharias. Remember the story in Luke where he's in the temple, and he's offering incense, and an angel appears to him and tells him he's going to have John the Baptist as a son? And he doesn't believe him, and he's struck dumb, can't speak. And, um, well, the traditional understanding is that he was in the temple for the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the very holy day in the Jewish calendar, and that uh, it usually happened around September 25th. And so if Elizabeth gets pregnant around September 25th, and six months later, who visits her? Mary. And so six months after September 25th is March 25th. And so March 25th is the typical day. So if Mary is brand new pregnant, conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, that would have been around March 25th. And so nine months after March 25th is December 25th. And so that's the church figuring of the date of December 25th. Now it becomes the most important day in Western civilization. So France, uh, Clovis was the king of the Franks. He's baptized on Christmas day with 3000 of his soldiers in 496 AD. This is the beginning of France becoming a, a Christian country. And then uh, in 597 A.D. on Christmas Day, 10,000 Anglo-Saxons are baptized there in England by St. Augustine of Canterbury. And then Charlemagne, uh, his grandfather was Charles Martel, who stopped the Muslims from invading Europe. And so he's crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800. Now, 46 years later, uh, 10,000 Muslims invade Rome, and they trash the Basilica of St. Peter's, and they trash the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. It was after that that Pope Leo decided to build the wall around the Vatican. But, um, and then St. Stephen is crowned King of Hungary on Christmas Day in the year 1000. Am I giving you too much information? It's all in the book. But um, So this Christmas Day ends up becoming a really important day for all of Western Europe. Now, St. Stephen had a son named Emmerich a holy guy, and he dies, and he's made a saint in the Catholic Church. And um, St. Emmerich uh, was popular in Italy. And so the Italian pronunciation of Emmerich is Amerigo, and a guy named that was Amerigo Vespucci. And he's an explorer map maker, and he puts his name on a continent called America. So America is named after Amerigo, which is the Italian pronunciation of Emmerich, which was the son of St. Stephen, who was crowned on Christmas Day in the year 1000. Did you catch all that? Again, a little bit of a stretch, but you can you figure it. Um, the king of Poland is crowned uh, on 1025 AD on Christmas Day, Mezioch II Lambert. And then in England, William the Conqueror is crowned on Christmas Day in the year 1066 in Westminster Abbey. And uh, then some other history. Uh, Columbus's Santa Maria is wrecked 
On Haiti, Christmas Eve, 1492, he leaves 40 sailors and names the settlement La Navidad. Washington crosses the Delaware on Christmas Day evening of 1776, one of the first major victories of the Revolution. Captain Cook discovers an island in the Pacific called Christmas Island on Christmas Day in 1777. He observes an eclipse of the sun. The War of 1812 ended on Christmas Eve of 1814. And uh, then the Apollo 8 astronauts uh, in 1968 are circling the moon. And they broadcast live on Christmas Eve back to the Earth. And uh, the astronauts read the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anders. They read the entire first chapter of the book of Genesis live from the moon to the earth. And afterwards they say, and from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you, all of you on the good earth. And uh, President Harry S. Truman, 1946, said, our hopes of future years turn to a little town in the hills of Judea where on a winter's night 2,000 years ago, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. Shepherds keeping watch by night over their flocks heard the glad tidings of great joy from the angels of the Lord, singing glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The message of Bethlehem sums up our hopes tonight. If we as a nation and as other nations of the world will accept it, the star of faith will guide us into the place of peace as it did the shepherds on the day of Christ's birth long ago. Now, Christmas in Western Europe is the most important day, December 25th. Eastern Europe they thought that January 6th was the holiest day. That's the date the three wise men came to visit. And this is the beginning of the Eastern and Western church beginning to split. And so they tried to patch it up at, in 567 AD at the Council of Tours. And they decided to make all 12 days between December 25th and January 6th the 12 days of Christmas. So the 12 days of Christmas is not the 12 days leading up to December 25th. It's the 12 days between December 25th and January 6th. Did you catch that? And of course, then in England, there was a song called In Those 12 Days, and it was a Sunday school song. And it was going through, uh, you know, in those 12 days, and it says, what is that? There's one, uh, we have God alone in heaven. He sits on his throne, and they sing the chorus. And, and it goes through all 12 of the days, but it's, it's like a Sunday school song. And then... Um, uh, there's the Battle of the Bulge um, that took place in Christmas of 1944. And uh, General Patton's coming to the rescue of the 101st Airborne, but he can't because of the bad weather. And so he gets his chaplain, James O'Neill, to compose a prayer for the soldiers. And um, Almighty, most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate reigns. Hearken to us as soldiers to call upon thee. Establish thy justice among the nations. Here's a general having a quarter of a million of these index cards printed and passed out to his troops. My wife was visiting her father at a nursing home, and the guy next door uh, had been one of Patton's soldiers, and he had one of these cards. And on the flip side of it, it had General Patton's Christmas greeting to his troops. Uh, of each officer and soldier of the Third Army, I wish a Merry Christmas. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion, and skill in battle. We will march in might to complete our victory. May God's blessings be upon each of you this Christmas day. So here is General Patton passing out Christmas cards to all the quarter of a million men in the Third Army. And the sky clears the next day. They come to the rescue of the 101st Airborne, and they win the Battle of the Bulge. And it was a turning point. And after that, uh, Hitler ended up uh, retreating until he finally blew his brains out. And so... um. Here's our president, Franklin Roosevelt, gives a Christmas greeting in 1944. It's not easy to say Merry Christmas to you, my fellow Americans, in this time of destructive war. We will celebrate this Christmas Day in our traditional American way because the teachings of Christ are fundamental in our lives, the story of the coming of the immortal Prince of Peace. And so our calendar changes 
from B.C. to A.D. And uh, the dean of Notre Dame's law school was Clarence Mannion. He was on staff with Eisenhower. And he writes this. The long march of measured time suddenly stopped, and then it did an about-face, and started to march in another direction, to a different drum, straight through the ensuing centuries of Christ and Christendom. B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord's reign, mark each one of the only reliable milestones along the path of world history. The end of the first time chain and the beginning of the second came together on the night that Christ was born in Bethlehem. The first Christmas day thus stands as the great divide for the timing and recording of all people, things, and events that have lived or taken place on this earth. The one place on the long, long trail of time where the magnetic needle of history stands vertical and points up. And what does it point up? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. Well, as pastor said, this next year, let's dedicate ourselves to read the Bible. You know, when my daughter was about six years old, I was driving the car, and she's talking, talking, and she says, Daddy, you're not paying attention to me. And I said, yes, Melody. And she said, she's talking, talking. She goes, Daddy, you're not paying attention to me. I go, yes, I am, yes, I am. She says, Daddy, she takes her two little hands, puts them on my cheeks, and she turns my face. Daddy, pay attention to me. I go, yeah, Melody, but I'm driving the car. (laughs) And I thought to myself, if a six-year-old can tell whether or not we're paying attention, you think God can tell? Or are we just giving God lip service? Yeah, God, yeah, God. He wants, and so how do I show her that I love her? I let her thoughts fill my brain. How do we show that we love God? We let his thoughts fill our brain. How How do his thoughts get in there? We read them, we put them in. And so I love the Bible reading uh, program that the church has online. I signed up for one where it sends the Bible reading for the day, if that's an email. How many of you get emails? And you get emails from your, uh, how many of you would read an email from someone important in your life? Maybe your spouse or your child or your boss? Who could be more important than God? And so I get this email. It's a little Bible reading for the day, a little Old Testament, a little New Testament. And by the end of the year, I've read through the whole Bible. I have another app on my phone and um, it's a download of the whole King James Bible, you know, and I can press play. And instead of listening to the radio, I can listen to the Bible. Even as a timer, I can put a little earplug in and listen to it as I'm going to sleep, you know, 15 minutes or 30 minutes before I'm going to sleep at night. And I thought, well, here we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be with all these saints and they're going to be, oh, you lived, you lived at a time when they had the printing press, so you probably had your own Bible. He goes, oh, yeah. Oh, you lived at the time when they had, they had MP3. You probably had the Bible on, you probably had Bibles in your home. You got it on your apps. You got an email to you. Can, you, probably, you probably were listening to it all the time, right? Hey, yeah. Every, what? You didn't read it? You had it right there? You weren't like risking your lives and getting together in a catacomb cave in Rome to try to read the little scripture part? No, I hate, we had it so veiled. We've got it. And we show God that we love. We let his thoughts fill our brain. And so I'm reading through the Bible again, and I see the story of Adam and Eve and how they sinned and they hid from God. And I thought to myself, you know when you sin against somebody, you sort of don't want to be around that person? Let's say you're talking about somebody behind their back. You're making fun of them. You're joking about them. And then that very person walks through the door, and they're walking toward you. But they've not seen you yet. Question, are you drawn to want to go over to that person or like, oh, great, there they are. Uh, I think I'm going to go out this way. Your own conscience doesn't want to let you to be around them. So when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God hadn't changed. Sort of, sort of like two magnets, they're stuck together and one of them turns. The other one still wants to touch, but this one's like, eh, and, the, and you can try to push as much as you want. And you're supposed to get away. So it's not so much that God sends people to hell. 
It's once people sin against God, their own conscience does not want to allow them to come into his presence. And the closer they get to the brightness of his glory, the more like, oh, I'm, I sinned. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized, man, we blew it. We got to do something to make ourselves acceptable to God again. And they put on fig leaves. This was the beginning of false religions. This was the beginning of man coming up with man's idea how to make man acceptable to God. Did the fig leaves work? No. And it says God made Adam and Eve coats of skins. We read through that really fast, but if you think of it, how do you make a coat of skin? I think something has to die. Do you think God went to the other side of the garden, killed some animal, and brought Adam and Eve some nice tailored outfits? Or do you think maybe he killed the animal right in front of them? And they're watching this innocent animal go through the pangs of dying, and they're thinking to themselves, we're, we're the ones that sin, but, but this innocent animal is dying. And God wanted to make it really clear that the animal was dying in their place, that he strips the skin off the animal, and he puts it on Adam and Eve. Maybe it still has some blood on it. And so for the rest of their lives, they are wearing the skin of that animal that died in their place. And whenever God sees them, he sees them clothed with the skin of the animal. The lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So Adam and Eve tell Cain and Abel. Cain decides he's going to worship God. But he does an offshoot of the church of the fig leaves. He starts the church of the fruits and the nuts. It's a false religion. It's a religion of works. It's him coming up with his idea, what he thinks is going to make him acceptable to God. And we know it's works because God told Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake and you'll bring forth fruit by the sweat of your brow. So here's Cain working really hard, sweating. He's getting that barley and wheat notes together and he puts it all on the altar. Does God accept it? No. Abel does the lamb thing, right? He kills the lamb and God accepts it. And so we see this picture of God's on one side, man's on the other side, our sins separate us from God, and the lamb pays for the sin. And so Abraham offered lambs, and Moses had every family in Israel offer a lamb, and David and Solomon had a thousand of them killed. And finally, John the Baptist points at Jesus, and he says, Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so we see this picture. God's on one side, man's on the other side, our sins separate us from God, and the lamb pays for the sin. And so I ask people, are you approaching God as a Cain or as an Abel? If you are still hoping you're good enough to go to heaven, you are approaching God as Cain. I hope I put enough on the altar. Maybe, maybe another handful of barley will do it. Or are you approaching God as Abel? It's not me. It's this lamb that gave his life to pay for my sins. The other part of it is God is just, and he can't help it. He's just just, and he has to judge every sin. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and God, you know, Abraham's talking to the Lord. He says, how can you, you know, do justice? Would you destroy the city if there's 10 righteous? You know, you're just. You got to be just. So God has to be just, and that's implanted in us so much that every police drama you see on TV, in the first two minutes, an injustice is done. And the whole rest of the hour, you're captivated, wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. I mean, you're watching, you got to catch that guy, catch it. Finally, he gets locked away. You go, yep, he's judge. That's the way it's supposed to be. So in the first two minutes of the book of Genesis, an injustice is done. Cain kills Abel. And God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was it crying? 
and injustice was done. You're a just God. You've got to judge the guy that did it. And so we see that God has to judge every sin. And that's the only side of God that the devil knew. He was puffed up with pride, and he wanted to kick God out of heaven. And God says, no, you're out. And so the devil thinks, you know, if I can get Adam and Eve to sin against God one time, God will have to judge him. So he gets him to sin. He goes, ha ha, you're a just God. I know that much. And they sinned against you. You've got to judge him. And so God sends the judgment, but in steps the lamb and intercepts it. And the lamb takes the judgment. And so I was reading the book of Revelation, and there's all these vials of judgment. It's God pouring out the vials of judgment. Why? He has to settle the score once and for all, for all eternity, that he judges every sin. And so in that aspect, Jesus took the book of Revelation, poured out on his head. He took the punishment for every sin that would ever be done. And so there's two aspects about the lamb. One is the lamb had to be spotless. If Jesus would have sinned one time, he could not have been our substitute. The second is, Jesus had to die willingly. If God would have had Jesus killed against Jesus' will, God would have been unjust for killing an innocent man. He made it through his whole life, didn't sin once, he was totally innocent, and if God would have had him crucified against his will, God would have been unjust for killing this innocent man. And so the whole plan of redemption came down to this one moment where Jesus is in the garden, sweating drops of blood, and he says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. He saw that that book of Revelation judgment was going to be poured out. He was going to take the penalty for every one of our sins, and he voluntarily said, I'll do it. So God maintains his justice because he, so the devil can't say, God, there's a sin you didn't judge it. Maybe you're unjust. God said, no, I sent the judgment. The judgment came, but he showed his love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment. And the lamb showed his love in that he knew the punishment. I heard someone explain it. Someone who's eternal, suffering for a temporary period of time, is the same thing as a temporal person suffering for an eternal period of time. So Jesus experienced what we would have our experience of eternal separation from God, he experienced as being an eternal being suffering for a temporal period of time. Jesus took the punishment of our eternal separation from God on himself on the cross. He experienced it. So God is just, but he's love. He provided the lamb, Jesus is love, that he willingly took the punishment for our sins. And for us to say, oh, I don't know if I'm good enough, that was, that's insulting to the lamb that God provided. Our response is to say, I am not worthy. I could never be good enough. And thank you, God, for providing the lamb to pay for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for being the lamb. And now I want to live as best as I can so that I can show the world how much you love them. I want to reflect your glory, but I don't think that I'm earning some uh, points by doing that. My salvation is in the lamb alone. Can you say amen? Amen. Well, I'm going to go ahead and turn it back over to pastor. And thank you so much for the privilege of being with you today. God bless you.